Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're very happy to have Laura Wittern Keller on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Freedom of the Screen, Legal Challenges to State Film Censorship, 1915 to 1981. It's a really terrific book, very thoroughly researched. Laura's done a great job. For those of you who are interested in the history of film, the history of censorship, and First Amendment issues, I guarantee it'll be a great read. I hope you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Marshall. I'm glad to be here with you today. All right. Today we have Laura Wittern-Keller on the show, uh, and we'll be talking about her book, Freedom of the Screen, Legal Challenges to State Film Censorship, 1915 to 1981. Um, I'm a film buff, so I was really interested to see the book, and my research assistant and I uh, had a great conversation about it yesterday uh, with a lot of kind of contemporary hooks and things like this. So it's, a, in a sense, a very timely book for anybody that uh, enjoys film, as I do. So the first thing I'd like to say to you, Laura, is thank you for writing it. <laughs> it was my great pleasure to stumble into it and, and, find, and uncover the research and, uh, and decide that these stories needed to be told. Well, there's a terrific amount of research in it, let me tell you that. The book is very detailed, incredibly readable, and as I say, I would, I would encourage anybody to go out and get it. It's um, from the, let's see, who's it from? The University of Kentucky Press, is that right? University Press of Kentucky, University right. University Press of Kentucky, yes, exactly right. All right. Um, well, let's begin by talking a little bit about you, if you don't mind, and why don't you give us give us some background on um, your background, you know, where you came from and so on and so forth. I'd be glad to. I grew up in Westchester County, New York. So anyone who knows the metropolitan New York area, that's mm-hmm. just north of New York City. Mm-hmm. And I did my undergraduate work at the what was called then the State University of New York at Albany. It's now called the University at Albany. Mm-hmm. I just always knew that I wanted to be either a historian or a writer. I, I always loved history. I always loved literature. I was one of those little kids who always, always had her nose in a book. Is that right? Yeah. The flashlight under the covers kind of thing, which is probably why my eyes are so bad today. <laughs> uh, but um, I went to Albany and majored in history and English, uh-huh. and then from there went to Penn State uh-huh. and did a master's degree in history, finished there in 1980. Uh-huh. And that was the time when... I had enrolled in a Ph.D. program there, but that was the time when uh, some um, academics will remember this when uh, academic enrollments were first starting to decline. And it was a hiring situation for academics that was absolutely non-existent. <laughs> so they, they herded us all into a big room shortly after we got to Penn State and said, you know, we haven't placed a Ph.D. in two years. Yeah. We're going to encourage you all to take a master's degree. and." Yeah go do something else. Yeah. And I did that and was always sorry that mm-hmm. I had done what I was told, always regretted that, and uh, took 18 years off and went yeah. off and raised a family, and mm-hmm. I worked in adult education. I mm-hmm. ran an adult education program for a while, and then mm-hmm. I worked in the ski business. Really? For a long, yeah, wow. for a long time. And then when my daughter was going to college in 1998, I thought, hmm, 
maybe this is my chance to go back and do that PhD that I'd always wanted to do. Yeah. And my husband was kind enough to to uh, encourage that and, and uh-huh. allow me to do that, for which I will be eternally grateful. Uh-huh. So I went to University of Albany, my original alma mater, to do my PhD uh-huh. and finished there in 2003. I had a marvelous experience at UAlbany doing my PhD. A little later in life, it's it, you appreciate things. Yeah, so I, much. I wanted to go back just for a second and talk about uh, something that you brought up because in the interviews that I've done, no one has ever mentioned it, um, and I talk to students about it who want to get PhDs in histories a lot, and that is the academic job market itself. Um, you know, I think that most people don't realize how difficult it is actually to land an academic job once you get a PhD in history. It's it's really kind of a tough go. It is it is extremely difficult, and, and as and I think you're right, Marshall. People outside of academia don't realize that if you if you don't land an academic job, they sort of think, well, why not? <laughs> and it's just that there are just so few of them, particularly yeah. in, in in some fields that are just um, just completely oversaturated yeah, no, with right. really good, high quality people yeah. trying to find jobs that that just aren't there. This happened in the 1970s, and it's happened again, of course, in in the 1990s. Yeah, and I mean, now it's, uh, it's 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 really kind of an ongoing crisis. And I, you know, I've written a little bit about this myself, and and um, you know, I experienced it myself, and many of my colleagues did. I think about the cohort of people that I came into graduate school with in 1985 and how many of them are still in academia today and it's it's under half I would say really? yeah, they're, yeah they're gone I used to teach with a bunch of people at Harvard as well as junior faculty member those people are all gone um, so it's you know it's really very difficult and I think most people don't realize that you know there's no clear path from you know a PhD to an academic job at least for most of us it's a it's really quite a struggle and quite a sacrifice and, and, and your you know your uh, experience is, is not at all uncommon and, you know, again, I just don't think that people really understand this. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've noted, you know, having applied for a lot of jobs and served on um, hiring committees is, is how arbitrary the process is. I mean, you know, when we here at Iowa, we, uh, you know, we advertise a job, we get lots and lots of very good candidates. And it is almost impossible to choose among them. It's really a difficult thing. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's, a, it's kind of... Um, it's it's an embarrassment of riches for most of us that serve on these committees. It really is. But uh, I've, I guess I, I was going to say I've always been of the opinion that the that the AHA or the American Historical Association that it should do something about the number of PhDs that's, that, that are produced. But heck, what do I know? <laughs> that, that, that's, that's a topic for another book. Yeah, that is sure. a topic for another book. I, I don't mm-hmm. know what they should do, but uh, I, I do know that, that, that a lot of my friends were, were sorely disappointed, and they were very good historians. Um, and mm-hmm. some of them continue to be. It's not as if you don't go on. I left academia for a while, and I worked in publishing, um, and I you know only came back by a kind of strange turn of unpredictable events. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, you know, it was an experience that I won't forget, and I, and, uh, I, I just think it's important for people that know about that. But... Right. Let's go back to your story. So you actually did something that I very much admire, and that is came back after a, uh, you had one career and you raised a family, and now you came back and you um, finished at Albany, and then you mm-hmm. wrote this book. Who did you work with at Albany? I worked with Richard Hamm, very fine legal historian who uh-huh. has been a wonderful mentor to me. I even mentioned this in the acknowledgments to the book that Richard is one of those people who says that the mentor-mentee advisor situation 
species like a marriage. It's a lifelong yeah. proposition. It's not you get your degree, now go away. Right. And, and fortunately for, for me, he meant every word of that. That's fantastic. And he's, he's still my mentor now, and as it turns out, he's also my department chair. Is that right? When I finished my PhD, to talk about you know getting academic jobs, when I finished my degree, I'd been teaching part-time at local colleges, which yeah. is yeah. typical when you're writing your dissertation. That's what a lot of people do. Yeah. And then I got a two-year visiting assistant professorship at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, mm-hmm. which was 2004 to 2007. Uh-huh. And that, that was wonderful. That is that it was just a wonderful place to land mm-hmm. while I was taking what had been a dissertation, chucking about half of it out the window and adding a lot more to it to turn the manuscript into a book. It was just a wonderfully warm, welcoming academic environment in which to do that work. Mm-hmm. And I'll always be grateful to UNCW for that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then I got a call from University at Albany and asking me to come back um, for two years here. So I'm a visiting assistant professor here again at University at Albany. Isn't that great? I'm peripatetic. It's kind of it's kind of storybook. Yeah. Speaking of peripatetic, I remember I like to tell people that uh, between the times I was 18 and about 38, I moved 20 times. <laughs> so peripatetic is what most historians are. I mean, you hear about yes. these people that get one job and that's it, but uh, you know, and then never move. But I, you know, that certainly wasn't my experience. I got to see the nation and much of the world um, <laughs> taking one academic job after another. But you must right. be very, very proud and satisfied to be back at Albany, and they must be very happy to have you. Well, it's it's wonderful to be back here. It's wonderful to be back in a department that, if you have to go somewhere for a temporary position, it's yeah. wonderful to be somewhere that you know and. and and you know the people, you know the area. It's been just a, a wonderfully positive experience all around. That's great. I'm very well, lucky. I, yeah, no, I'm really glad to hear that. That is really very excellent. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, actually my alma mater is right down the road here from the University of Iowa. I went to a little college called Grinnell, and um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I've been thinking, but they asked me to give talks occasionally, and I, and I've been begging off, but I would like to go back there actually to give a talk because the place was very important to me. I know that. So um, let's move on to uh, the dissertation. How did you choose this particular topic? <laughs> that's that's a wonderful story. I'm so glad you asked. The first year of my PhD work, I was like most PhD students. You know, I had an idea what I wanted to major in, what I wanted to study in the fields I wanted to do, but I didn't have a dissertation topic. So I'm walking through the hall one day, and one of the professors who I'd actually had as an undergrad when I was at, at Albany was standing in the hallway. And we stopped, you know, one of those usual hi, how are you kind of conversations in the hallway. And he said that he had just come back from taking one of his public history classes on a tour of the New York State Archives, mm-hmm. which is just down the road from us here in Albany. Right. And he'd listened to the archivist for about the umpteenth time beg this class to come in and use the records of the Motion Picture Division, which was the New York Motion Picture Censors, mm-hmm. to use those records for public policy research, he said. People have come in and they've used them for social policy, that social research, they've used it for cultural research, but nobody's done any policy studies out of this. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hmm, okay, I'll bite. So I went down uh, to see what was there, and I had this idea that I could find out who the censors were. What I wanted to know was why. If these movies were so dangerous that they needed to be kept away from people, how come the censors never wondered? that after watching all these movies that they themselves didn't become crazy, drug-addicted, alcoholic, adulterous, murderous, sex addicts. Yes, right. And that was what I decided I wanted to go find. Well, I quickly learned that most of the personnel records have been called. Uh Uh-huh. 
before they were archived, they were they were taken out, which you know makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. So then, in good graduate student fashion, I started looking <laughs> around for what what are the fattest files. Yeah. What, what has the most information? And that's when I had it. Right. The fattest files in the New York State Archives related to their censorship division were the films where the distributor refused to accept an adverse ruling and challenged those rulings in court. Yeah, I see. And then I had it. Yep. And that became the dissertation and then became the germ of Freedom of the Screen, the book that came from it. It's the right. people who looked at the censorship that was going on and said, I'm not. I'm not accepting this and taking my movie and going away. I'm going to fight back, and I'm, I'm going to fight back the only way I can, yeah. which is through the courts, through litigation. Yeah. Right. Before we talk about that, let me flatter you just a little bit more and say that um, it's actually. I think people don't realize this as well. It's hard to turn a dissertation into a book. It's not, a, it's not an easy thing at all, and you did it remarkably quickly and remarkably well. <laughs> well, thank you. Tell your husband that and have him take you out for dinner or something. <laughs> because I will play him this interview for sure. It took me, it took me years <laughs> to get it done. It, so. it, is, it is a difficult process, but one of the things, too, about UAlbany and its, and its history department, and give them another little plug here, is they're very concerned that dissertations are publishable. That's great. Yeah. They, they, you know, when you come to them with an idea of a dissertation prospectus, they want to know, well, is this publishable? Has has nothing else been done on this? Is it truly yeah. is it truly original? You know, completely original, and is it going to be written in such a fashion that you can get it published? They don't want dissertations sitting on a shelf. My God, those are all the right questions. I counsel uh -huh. people to go to the University of Albany for graduate school. On the <laughs> your testimony alone. <laughs> it sounds terrific. Um, so let's get to the book itself. Why don't you set the scene for us um, concerning? Um, the censorship of dramatic productions in the 19th century generally before movies, because I think that's an important part of the story. Yeah, before movies, there, there wasn't a whole lot. And what was being done was hit and miss. And there was a lot of censorship of dramatic productions in the colonial era. By the 19th century, there was really not a whole lot going on. And what there was was occasional you know, a, a police uh, official somewhere would get get wind of a of a dramatic production that that didn't sound quite right and would go in and would shut it down. Mm -hmm. But that would be after the production had aired, after the production had already moved into what Oliver Wendell Holmes called the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. And then it would be an after the fact, usually an obscenity. Um, prosecution, mm -hmm. and it would be a legally conducted prosecution on of of an obscenity statute wherever that wherever that was. Right, and the obscenity statute itself would be local because there is no federal obscenity statute. The founding fathers did not have a, a codicil to the Constitution in which they defined pornography or anything like that, did they? Exactly, exactly. Much to Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart's great chagrin, he was the one who penned that famous phrase about I I can't define obscenity, but I know when I I know it when I, I see when it. I see it. Yeah. No, um, exactly. He, poor Potter Stewart. He. he he regretted ever writing that. To the end of his days, he said, "That's the only thing anyone will ever remember yeah, me probably, for." Probably right. But, yeah, and that's one of the one of the the themes of one of the theses of of my book is the problem with this kind of thing is how do you define yeah. obscenity? How do you define immorality or th something that's inhuman or sacrilegious, who makes those definitions, yeah. who draws the lines? And that's where I think the censors who come in in the 
pretty much in the progressive era, the movie censors, that's that's where they were the most vulnerable. So let me just take, let me take, before we go there, let me take one step Mm -hmm. back. Now, was it the case in the 19th century that the states themselves or the municipalities um, licensed theaters where this obscene activity might go on? I think that, if I recall correctly, that was, uh, there was good statutory basis for that, those prosecutions. Is that right? Yeah, well, yes, the the license, most municipalities license theaters, but usually for safety purposes. Yeah, right, exactly. The fire marshal licensed them. But, exactly. But that was the Ex- basis of their regulation. Right. Yeah, right, not on the basis of any content. Because the Elizabethans and things, again, this is going way back for me, but the Elizabethans and things heavily regulated theater troops and theaters mm-hmm. and, you know, they have licenses and people lost their licenses or all kinds of... Queen Elizabeth mm-hmm. cut off somebody's hand, I think, for writing a bad sonnet or something. I can't remember. But, yeah, there was all kinds of that thing. That, that Amer- sort of thing. Go ahead. Uh, and, and Americans were very used to that idea. Yeah. They, they were used to the idea that something that was visual, that was being produced on the stage, could be restricted. Right. That was That was not an idea that was unusual to right. Americans. They were quite used to that idea. So right. when movies show up, right. the so idea that funny. someone can restrict movies is not particularly shocking. Right. And this is something I think that, and, and something I want to emphasize, something that I think we, that is me, <laughs> as I will be standing in the audience, just don't realize in our conscious minds, and that is that things like movies, dramatic visual productions, are not protected by the First Amendment, at least not to the extent we think they are. They right. are not free speech. Well, the Supreme Court did say that movies deserve the protection of the First Amendment in 1952, mm-hmm. and we're getting way ahead of the story here. Yep. But they also said in the same decision that while they do deserve the First Amendment protections, that it's still okay if a municipality or state wants to draw a narrowly drawn statute mm-hmm. to prohibit the showing of obscene films. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly okay. And one thing that I think would shock most people is that the Supreme Court never, in all the litigation that went on over motion picture censorship, never said that it was unconstitutional. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think that's very interesting, and I think it's counter what most people in a kind of folk understanding of the First Amendment uh, would attest to, which is to say, mm-hmm. I, if you would have asked me, I would say, well, yeah, you can show anything you want because obviously you have freedom of speech in the United States. But in fact, that really isn't quite true. That's actually uh, much more complicated than that. And your book does a great job of, of kind of, of, um, of, of bringing that out. Now, let's go, let's go to this sort of technological moment, and that is uh, uh, the, the, the kind of invention and spread of movies in, I guess, what you'd call the Nickelodeon era. Because mm-hmm. uh, what, what exactly did this, how did this fit within the confines of uh, public morality and the law when it first mm-hmm. appeared? So why don't you set the stage there? Well, Nickelodeon, the, the, the rise of movies uh, first uh, in the late 1890s is when movies first become, um, the, the technology arrives. And they spread literally like wildfire. People were amazed at the idea that a picture could move. Mm-hmm. The only thing I think I can compare it to is anyone who's seen the Harry Potter movies. Mm-hmm. In the Harry Potter movie, or have read the books, the portraits on the wall exactly, yeah. that move yeah. and talk back at the audience. I mean, imagine how amazed we would be today if we walked by a portrait and it talked back at us. That's about, I think, what the reaction of most people were to the idea that a, that a picture could move. That's interesting. It's a good analogy. The, I think they were absolutely astounded by that, and they went to watch really odd things. I mean, things like a train pulling into the station, yeah, or people leaving work. Uh-huh. Um, they would go and they would just sit and they would watch these things, and they were, you know, literally several minutes long, uh-huh. yeah. and they were astounded and they were amazed. Well, it didn't take long before someone started putting 
making movies of women seen through the peephole, yes. of seen in their boudoir getting ready for bed and, yes. and those kinds of things. Uh -huh. And that's when things started to heat up. That's so this when... Is this was primarily in New York, wasn't it? I mean, the first Nickelodeons were in Lower Manhattan, if I recall correctly. Am I not? Well, they to... they were the very first, but the the uh, the Nickelodeon spread all across the country. Uh huh. They were all across the country. This was this was a very popular idea, and in places where there it was too expensive to create um, any kind of Nickelodeon or theater, there were traveling people who came through with movies and traveling projectors. Uh huh. So this this is a, a really very rapid expansion of the technology into the public sphere. Right. So when and it did, worried a lot of people. Yeah. When did the first efforts to censor these films occur and where? The first statewide, well, the first effort, the first legal effort was in 1907 in the city of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And the, the city of Chicago decided that this, these Nickelodeons were literally on every street corner, that things needed to be controlled. So they empowered their police chief. <laughs> To look at movies and then to say that movie can't be shown. And on what basis did they give him a list of things? To, to no, buck? no, they just no. Said, yes, I just see. Whatever he thinks is, is contrary yeah. to public morals. Okay. Anything that he thought might be dangerous, and okay. you know that's a theme that that we're going to have all throughout this. Um, after Chicago in 1907, the first state to adopt censorship was Pennsylvania uh -huh. in 1909. That was a statewide censorship. And that was different, though, because that set up a board of censors. And these were people whose job were statutorily to sit in a room and watch movies before anyone could see them and say yes, no, or maybe. And by the maybe, they would say, you can show your movie, but only after you take these things out. And who appointed these people? They were appointed by the governor. The governor. So the governor? Early. I see. The early censorship stat statutes in, in almost all the states, these were gubernatorial appointments. They were patronage plums. Oh, I see. So it started in – now, Pennsylvania passed its law in 1909. It didn't start censoring until 1911, but the first active prior restraint censorship board comes in Pennsylvania in 1911. It's very quickly followed two years later by Ohio, then by Kansas – then it moves to Maryland in 1916, New York in 1921, Virginia in 1922. I see. And so that actually, was the last one. That's kind of an interesting moment because it, uh, that's seven, right? Well, the seventh one would be Massachusetts. They had a different situation. They tried to pass a censorship board, and Hollywood mounted a very strong campaign against it, mm. and they managed to lose in Massachusetts. So they mm. got around it by using what they called their Lord's Day statute. Mm -hmm. That was an old law that empowered city officials to stop anything that they thought was damaging on Sunday, mm -hmm. things that couldn't be shown on Sunday. Well, yeah. if you tell a movie producer he can't show this movie on Sunday without taking this piece out, right. then he's not going to show it the other six days of the week. Yeah, no, I see. So, so, yeah, I was going to say, here's my question. Why, why only seven states? Why didn't this spread across the country? I mean, that is the, that is the question, and I'm not sure that I was able to find a wholly satisfactory answer. What I think happened was because the realities of film distribution don't go state by state, because a distributor will generally handle several states, that if you censored movies in New York, that effectively covered New Jersey mm -hmm. and probably Connecticut as well, because the distributor isn't going to cut up his film. Mm -hmm to meet the, the dictates of the New York censors, and then have a different version in New Jersey and a different version in Connecticut. So New York was doing New Jersey's work for it. 
Well, I'm not sure I'd go that far. I think it, it was certainly unintended. It was certainly not an intended consequence, but I think that happened a lot. There was a lot of overflow from one area to the next. Also, by 1922, when the last one came in, and that was Virginia, was the last one to come in, the progressive impulse that was the impetus for these motion picture statutes was beginning to wear out. It, it was beginning to die out. Motion picture censorship is very much a child of the progressive era. It's very much a child of the era that said the right of the individual should always be sacrificed to the greater good. I see. Mm -hmm. And so keeping harmful, dangerous images from women and children and immigrants and susceptible members of society is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Most progressives would have seen this as a very positive, very good thing to do. And by 1922, those ideas were really starting to wear out. It's funny because in an odd, collection, an odd connection, I was just reading Plato's Republic. I, that's, the thing, that's the kind of thing professors do. <laughs> and uh, he basically argues the same thing. He says that, you know, Actors are fakers, and they're likely to corrupt people, so we should really keep, keep them away. Poets and actors, we should keep them out of the republic. They're bad <laughs> for people, yeah. Um, and that was, what, you know, 2,500 years ago. Uh, so it's not a new argument by any means. It kind of comes Certainly. and goes. So could you tell us a little bit about what sort of things they banned in this early era from, what is it, 1907 to the teens? What sort of things didn't they like? Yeah, that's a very difficult thing to find out, too. Um, in the course of the research, of course, I started in New York, and then I, I wound up going to all of the states uh, except Kansas. Kansas is the only one I didn't go to. I looked at the records in all of the states, mm -hmm. and that was part of what I was trying to find out. It's very difficult to tell because while we have the records of the censor saying, take this out and take that out, we don't have the original film. Mm -hmm. And so it's very. We can't go back to the original film and say, "Oh, this is what they didn't like." The films are gone. Now in New York, in the New York State Archives, they kept all of the scripts. Mm -hmm. So New York Archives now, the New York State Archives now is the largest film script database in the world. Mm -hmm. They have all seventy thousand scripts that mm -hmm. came through New York between 1921 and 1965 when wow. they when they finally gave up. So we have the scripts, but we can't compare it to the original film. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to say, well, they were objecting to this in this era and, and, and this changed, and then they were objecting to that in that era. There's no way to, to quantify what they were looking at. Mm -hmm. I think, and, and it, cha it obviously changed over time, but I think in the early 20s, before Hollywood was policing itself as carefully as it would come to do after 1934, they were looking largely at sex, and by sex they meant something very different than, than we mean. They meant um, kissing, okay. that kind of thing, yeah. or seduction. They were very concerned about scenes of maybe a gigolo trying to seduce a young woman. Right. That kind of thing, which was probably all verbal, but they, that was that was worrisome. Mm -hmm. I did find evidence that in Pennsylvania, at least, there was some censorship for political messages. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't see a whole lot of that going on, but there are several cases in Pennsylvania where they were worried about films that were taking a position on the Spanish American. Um, I'm sorry, on the um, Spanish Civil War. Mm -hmm. And so I did see some of that. I saw very little of that. I didn't see any, any evidence of that in New York State, which doesn't mean it wasn't going on. Right, right. I just didn't find it. Didn't that's, find a smoking gun. Right. That's interesting. That's very interesting. But mostly so, they're, they're looking at sex. They're looking at violence. They're looking at things that they think will be harmful to children. Children, uh -huh. is, children are the, the argument 
for censorship. We have to protect the children, and that is mostly what they're looking for, anything that's going to harm kids. Yeah, that's what Plato says, too. Um, an interesting connection. The, so what, how did the uh, film uh, makers and distributors uh, react to these attempts to censor? And also, could you tell us a little bit about them? I mean, one thing I think people don't know is that there were very many of them at this time. Oh, yes. Uh, we, we think of Hollywood as this monolithic organization. That, that only comes in with the rise of the studio system. In the early days, uh, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of filmmakers. Uh -huh. And so because there were so many of them, it was almost impossible to, to mount any kind of organized defense uh -huh. against this kind of thing. Hollywood was very concerned about its image, and they were trying to fight off several big scandals that, they, that were plaguing them in the 1920s. So I think these censorship statutes coming along pretty much took them by surprise. And it wasn't until New York in 1922, when, when New York was talking about bringing in censorship in 1921, of course, New York was such an enormous market. Yeah. That, that if New York went into the censorship category, that was going to be a major loss. Mm -hmm. And at that point, they mount uh, a, an offensive against censorship in New York, but it's pretty weak and it's very late. Mm -hmm. And so they lose New York. They decide at that point they're not going to lose Massachusetts, and they mount a pretty good, strong defense against that. But it, New York is not the, the, I'm sorry, Hollywood is not the monolith at this time that it would later become. Now, does, that doesn't come until the 30s, really. Does censorship uh, put a lot of independent producers and uh, distributors out of business in the 19-teens and 20s? It's, I don't have any evidence of that. I can't really say because I, I don't have the business records of those I distributors. See. All I have are the censors' records, so it would be impossible right. for me. That would be a very interesting thing for someone else yeah. to try to research, but because those records are, would be so scattered, if they even exist, I think that would be pretty difficult to, to track down. But it was a major burden on the distributors, uh -huh. not on the filmmakers, but on the distributors. It was uh -huh. the distributor who paid a censoring fee. Right. So not only did you get the privilege of having your movie examined by some faceless bureaucrat, <laughs> you also got to pay for it. The indignity of paying for it. Yeah, I see just what you mean. So um, I guess I'm interested to know um, how best put this. Let's see. On what grounds did the... Uh, film distributors argue against the censorship measures? Excellent question. And that changes over time. In the 1920s and 1930s, when the first distributors start challenging adverse censor de de determinations, they're usually arguing it's a tit-for-tat kind of thing. They'll say that the censor said it was immoral. It's not immoral, uh -huh. which is not very productive. They're arguing basically with the censor's opinion of the film. And in the 1920s and 1930s, that's not going to fly in the courts because the courts are very much believing that experts who are legislatively empowered to look at these kinds of things mm -hmm. know best. Yeah. So those kinds of arguments all fail. Uh-huh. All of the censorship um, cases that come before the courts in the 1920s and the 1930s fail. Uh-huh. They never so, win. <laughs> yeah, they never win. They never win. And they try, they, they, but it's usually the argument of it's the he said, she said. I say it is, you say it's not. And right. it doesn't work very well. So the, the arguments that are made are pretty fruitless. It uh -huh. isn't until after World War II when distributors start saying, wait a minute, this is an infringement of free speech, uh -huh. that we begin to make any inroads against censorship. Uh huh. 
I see. And we have to remember that the Bill of Rights was not applied to the states until, right. didn't even begin to be applied to the states until 1925. Right. And then only slowly. So free speech, free press, according mm -hmm. to the courts, that only restricts federal law, mm -hmm. doesn't restrict state law. Mm -hmm. And these censorship ordinances were all state and local law. So in the 1920s, then, the uh, censoring bodies were reasonably successful, then, in uh, manipulating or cowing the distributors themselves. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They had a great deal of, of – well, they were legally empowered. Which is which is one thing that I that I like to do is, is take a more narrow definition of the word censor. Mm -hmm. I, I like to argue that the word censor is used so broadly these days that it has lost a great deal of meaning. Mm -hmm. What these people were doing was true censorship because they had the legal authority to say this can't be seen mm -hmm. by anyone mm -hmm. within our state or within our city or whatever. That to me is true censorship. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. So who is behind? Uh the, I guess, political initiative to censor? Because I know you mentioned the Catholic Church at one point, and there's something called the Legion of Decency. Isn't that what it's called? Can you speak a right. little bit about that? Yeah. Well, it's, it's the progressives to begin with. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's but the progressives who get the ball rolling. Right. They're Protestants, though, right? Yes, yes. largely. Yeah, largely. Right. Okay. And then when the progressive movement starts to wane in the 1930s, we get a new cheerleader stepping forward mm -hmm. for censorship, and that is the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. They step into the vacuum left by the Protestants and the progressives as they start to move away and become less concerned with it. Mm -hmm. And in 1930, the, the Catholic Church becomes so outraged at what is still being shown that they go to Hollywood and they say, look, how would you like us to help us? How would you like us to help you? We'll write a code of conduct for you. Hollywood have been trying to do this. They've had several attempts mm -hmm. at, make, at writing some sort of code for the producers. Mm -hmm. you know, don't do this, but you can do that. And they had been very unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. When the Catholic Church says, look, why don't we help you with this? Hollywood, in the form of the Motion Picture Producers Association, says, sure. That'd mm -hmm. be great, because they recognize that the Catholics are their greatest critics, mm -hmm. and how best to quiet your critics than to say, come on board and, and tell us what we can and can't do. So that was the origin of the Hollywood Production Code in 1930. Uh -huh. That was a very specific list of what you couldn't do in movies. <laughs> what was on that list? There were how many points? I don't recall. Oh, I, I don't even know. There were... There were dozens, but it, it was an extensive list, and it's easily any, any any listener who wants to see this, it's easy to find on the internet. Was there are any number of sites that have the entire production code there. You can go read it. Was it things like a woman shall not show her ankles and that sort of thing, or be depicted no, around it, a piano? It, it, it wasn't that specific. That was that was more like in the in the 1920s that kind uh -huh. of idea. By the time we get to this, it's more that that movies should always show the correct side of life. I see. Whatever that is, uh -huh. you know, and that's gonna that's gonna differ. But they did have you know specific things in the production code that you could and could not do. But anybody who's interested, in it, it's fascinating reading. It's not terribly long. I mean, you can read it in about twenty minutes. Uh, was there it's any really interesting reading? Was there? Any, I've never read it. I'm sorry to say, but I am interested to know. Was there anything in there about uh, sort of uh, race relations? No. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, nothing specific. It was uh, all. Couched in much, and, and interesting that you bring up race relations. The only time in the research that I found anything specific on race relations was in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And in Virginia, those censors were expected to maintain proper, make sure that the movies represented the races properly. Yes. And by properly, 
I'll leave that to other people's okay. uh, idea. Yeah. But uh, that, I didn't see that anywhere else. Now, I'm sure that that went on, but uh-huh. there's no way I can quantify that. Yeah, no, it, it, it was actually written into Virginia, the Virginia censors' rules mm-hmm. that they were to watch for that kind of thing. Interracial relations were not ever to be shown. Right. Interracial marriage was not ever to be shown, those so, kinds of things. So I guess we shouldn't think, I'm, I'm going to uh, ask you, we, we shouldn't think that the people that were behind these uh, censorship programs were uh, cynics in any way. They, they really believed that these movies were corrupting people. And I'm, this is sort of a leading question, and I hope you'll say a few words about this. Um, I believe it's a study or a book called Our Movie Made Children. Right. Can you say a few and, words about that, which I and, found and, quite remarkable? And I'm so glad you brought that up, because one of the things I tried very hard to do in the book is not to be judgmental against the pro-censorites. Yeah. They were completely sincere. They were completely sincere in their belief that what they were doing was for the benefit of children, for the benefit of other people in society who might be susceptible to harmful messages. These, these were people who believed as strongly in that as the anti-censorites believed that it was a violation of free speech uh-huh. later on. And I tried very hard not to be judgmental of those people because uh-huh. they, they honestly believed they were doing the right thing for society. And I'm going to throw something a little bit provocative out here. Considering what's happened to movies, hey, yeah. since censorship, <laughs> yeah, I, no. you know, I, who's to say that they they didn't have a point? That's what I was reading Plato yesterday, and I'm like, you know, some of this makes sense. <laughs> right. Now, they were they were very sincere about this. The Catholics were very sincere about this, that this was for the benefit of all. Yeah. And if a few people couldn't get to make a movie or see a movie that they wanted to, they needed to step aside yeah. for the greater good. I see. Yeah. No. And so in the 1930s, the Catholics take over and they become the, the real push behind censorship. In the 1940s, we're involved in the war. It, censorship goes, it just takes a backseat to everything in the patriotism of the 1940s. Uh-huh. There, are, there are no cases that come up in the 1940s. Right. So, but in so, the 1950s, then it becomes a Cold War issue. Right. I see. So can we go back just for a second to this Our Movie Made Children? Is this a book or a story? Oh, yes, I'm yeah. sorry. That's okay. Uh, it's, but, but exactly what, how was it funded and what did it do? Because, and, and, um, you know, the United States has periodically turned over, you know, kind of legislative initiatives to social scientists and usually with disastrous results. And I was interested to see this one because it was one of the first I'd ever encountered. So if you could just say a few words about the study itself and how it was conducted and what its conclusions were. Sure. And there are some wonderful articles that have been written about this. This is called the Pain Fund Studies. It's P-A-Y-N-E. Uh-huh. The Pain Fund. This was a, a group that had put together some money and decided to hire, as you said, all kinds of social scientists that were psychiatrists and sociologists and um, historians and all, film, all kinds of people that they brought together to study the effects of movies on children. Uh-huh. So they'd bring children in and, and the psychologist or the psychiatrist would, would wire the kids up and, and, and listen and, and watch their brain waves, track their brain waves as they watch movies. They'd ask them questions. They'd show them maybe a horror movie and then they'd ask them the next day if, if they had had trouble sleeping. And it was all done in pretty good social science fashion for the time. It was, it was very well done in terms of the social science research methods of the time. Yeah. And then they published 12, I think it was 12 volumes. Might have been nine volumes, I can't remember, but published wow. a multitudinous volume study showing all of this. Unfortunately, a writer named Henry James Foreman uh-huh. was also hired to take these nine volumes, I believe it was, and digest them for popular consumption. Yes. 
And the book that he wrote was the book that you refer to, Our Movie Made Children. Uh Foreman took what was in these volumes of sociological research and twisted information to get to the point that he wanted to make, which was that movies harm children. Uh And this came out in 1930 and... 32, I'm not sure of the exact date, but came out and was digested further in popular magazines. It was reviewed in the New York Times, Mm -hmm. and it just provided all of this fodder for people who were in favor of censorship that, yes, indeed, these movies are harming our children, and we need to watch out for these things. And the moral panic that sparked the original censorship statutes in the progressive era, rises again with the publication of Our Movie Made Children. Yeah, I just find this fascinating because it, it, this is not the first time, I think, in which we've turned this over to social scientists and then uh, asked them for their opinion. It's definitely not the last. I can name at least two others. I mean, I know that in the 1950s uh, the, there were large investigations done by psychologists of comic books, of all things, mm-hmm. and how they were corrupting people. And then, of course, in the 1960s, there were studies of television. And now, I suppose, there are studies of the Internet and how it's corrupting people in various ways. And we always seem to return to this sort of neoplatonism where where our art we can't distinguish representation from reality and therefore we are corrupted in some way i, I there's something very interesting about I, I i don't know exactly how it how we always reach the same conclu- wrong conclusion about it i don't you know it, it's not wrong with a capital w but there's just something funny about it and i, I was very interested to see that that they had done it in this instance it didn't particularly mm-hmm. surprise me so then take us to the point where um the temperament of the states and the courts themselves seems to change, and they become more persuaded by the arguments of the distributors that they might not want to censor these movies. I guess we're in the 1950s now. Right. The first case that's going to make it to the United States Supreme Court on movie censorship since 1915 comes in 1952. Mm-hmm. And that is a case brought by a distributor named Joseph Burston, B-U-R-S-T-Y-N. He was a very highly regarded but small-time film importer in New York City. He had brought in this movie called The Miracle, done by Roberto Rossellini from a film script by Federico Fellini. Uh It's a 40-minute movie. He thought it was wonderful. He fell in love with the movie, and his whole goal in life was to bring fine foreign films to the United States. Art films. That was I'm sorry? Art films, as we yes. used to call them. Yes. Yeah. Now they're not yeah. called art films anymore, but yeah. Art right. films, yeah. So he brought in The Miracle, and it was passed by the New York State censors twice. Uh-huh. And he starts showing the movie in a theater in New York City, and everything's fine. And then all of a sudden, he's told that unless the theater removes the movie, the theater is going to lose its license. He huh. told us by the New York State, New York City, excuse me, license commissioner who took great umbrage at the film, who saw the film as a mockery of the virgin birth. Oh, what's the film about? Why don't you, can you just give us a short precy of the, uh, I guess. Yeah, it's a, it's a demented uh, peasant woman in Italy uh-huh. who is herding her goats yeah. one day. And a man walks by, a stranger to her, yeah. and in her demented state, she thinks that this man is St. Joseph, wow. her favorite saint. Uh-huh. He takes one look at her and says, hmm, easy mark, and right. starts plying her with wine. Yeah. And as her inhibitions loosen, the screen goes to black. We see absolutely nothing. A few scenes later, she's playing with some village children. She faints. The village women rush to her aid and realize that she's pregnant. It's kind of funny because, yeah, this is the same plot as the, I don't know how many of our listeners will remember this, but the video for uh, 
Like a Prayer by Madonna. <laughs> See, that's what I, yeah, you'll have to look. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, this fellow took umbrage at this, and, and one can kind of see what one imagines he was Catholic or something like this. I don't. I don't well, know. yes, yes. yes, uh, yes. Uh, many, many of the officials in New York City in, at this time were Catholic. The mayor was Catholic. The license commissioner was Catholic. The fire department commissioner, the police commissioner, and the Catholic Legion of Decency, which was the film reviewing segment of the Catholic Church, yeah. had alerted the license commissioner to this movie and that it was it was sacrilegious. Uh-huh. So to make a, a, a very complicated, very interesting story short, the New York State censors bowed to pressure from the Catholic Church and removed Burston's license for the miracle. Uh-huh. And he decided at that point that he just had to fight back. He right. very courageously spent a lot of his own a lot of money to fight this through two levels of New York State court both of which he lost, and then managed to get the U.S. Supreme Court to agree to hear the case. Did he have any help here? Was the ACLU on board? Because it existed at the time. And the, New York, the New York chapter of the ACLU, the New York Civil Liberties Union, was of help to him, but they were helping in terms of publicity and in terms of filing amicus briefs, but they uh-huh. weren't paying his legal bills. He was on his own for that. He, had a, he hired his own attorney, wow. a, very, a man who would become known as one of the finest civil liberties lawyers of all time, but who was just beginning his career a man named Ephraim London, mm-hmm. represented Joseph Burston. They brought this case to the, the Supreme Court. The Motion Picture Association of America wanted nothing to do with it. They, <laughs> right. they, they just backed right away. <laughs> yeah. And the U.S. Supreme Court, and, and Burston and London argued that this is a violation of the First Amendment. And they also argued that it was an establishment of religion by the state of New York uh-huh. because it was accepting the Catholic Church's version of sacrilege and not other people's version of sacrilege. Uh-huh. And so they won. They won. And that was the case where the Supreme Court said that movies should have the protection of the First Amendment, but that doesn't mean that censor boards have to go away. They just can't censor for sacrilege anymore, and they need that the, there was supposed to be a heavy burden. That was the word they used, heavy burden, placed on the censors to prove that the movie that they were restricting was indeed an exceptional or an exceptionally bad movie. Right. Now, so- that heavy burden isn't... That doesn't happen. Is this where we get the doctrine of artistic merit, or does that come later? Artistic merit, we never hear that phrase, oh, really? artistic merit, when it comes to movies. Not, not, not in the Supreme Court era. They, where they, never, where they start arguing about whether film critics should be expert witnesses, uh-huh. whether, the, whether the opinion of critics should matter. And that takes into, basically into the 1960s before the courts will begin to say, yes, we should be listening to what critics say. And if this is a film of artistic merit, then maybe we should allow some greater leeway. Right, but, but at this point, concerning the miracle, they simply said it's covered by the First Amendment, but only insofar as determinations of religiosity are concerned. Everything else is, is fair game. Yeah, they, so they're telling New York State, you can't censor for sacrilege anymore. I see. You have to stop doing that, and you have to start, you know, basically what the court was saying was, we're going to start watching. Yeah. And that's what they did. They started watching, and every film distributor who came and asked for review after this point, they accepted. And each time... The people who were opposed to censorship got their hopes up, thinking, this is the one, this is the one. And each time, the court would just say, no, the censorship of this movie is wrong, but they wouldn't go any further than that. So is that what they say in the next case, um, which is La Ronde? 
LaRonde and M. It was a remake of the famous M, yes. Fritz, yeah, the Peter Laurie Fritz Lang yeah. movie M was a remake of that movie. And these were this was really frustrating because it was a case coming out of Ohio and a case coming out of New York. The court agreed to hear both of them and mm-hmm. the anti censor rates now are getting really excited. Wow, if they're gonna hear two cases yeah. then this must be the end. They're they're getting ready to do it. And what they did was a what was called a per curiam opinion, which basically said nothing except that these two movies can't be censored for the reasons that you're censoring them. And it left legal commentators scratching their heads, attorneys general in states scratching their heads, what does this mean? It was completely unclear mm-hmm. as to what the court was saying. Mm-hmm. More challenges come over more movies, and each time the Supreme Court chips away a little bit more at the power of the censors until 1961. Mm-hmm. And then in 1961, a case, one distributor decides, he says, you know, the problem here is that we keep bringing these cases with a movie that's been censored. And that gives the court a narrow route. Mm-hmm. And they always they like to take a narrow route, saying the censorship of this one movie is wrong. Mm-hmm. So if I don't bring my movie to the censors, then they can't talk about the censorship of that one movie. They'll have to hit the broader issue, Mm -hmm. the broader issue being the constitutionality. Mm -hmm. Well, that backfired. Because in 1961, the Supreme Court said, we're not going to find these cases, we're not going to find censorship unconstitutional. In fact, they found in favor of the Chicago censors in 1961. That was Mm -hmm. the only loss after the Miracle case. Mm -hmm. And then the other, then the, the last big case that comes is in 1965. That comes from a film in Maryland that was also not submitted to the censor board so that the court would have to reach the broader question. It was a completely uncensorable movie. It had to do with the 1916 Irish Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And the it's pretty much, it's sort of a Cain and Abel story in the 1916 Rebellion. And the court then, in 1965, looks at the argument made, this distributor's argument, man named Friedman, this distributor's argument was the length of time it took for the movie to be censored, and then the length of time when the censor said no, for it to make its way through the courts. Mm-hmm. And that was the argument that finally worked. The court said, you're right, this is taking way too long, this is a violation. But instead of saying movie censorship is an unconstitutional abridgment of free speech, what they did is they just said, you people, if you're going to censor movies, you've got to do it faster. Mm-hmm. And they shifted the burden of proof. Up until this point, the burden of proof had always been on the distributor. He had to go to court to prove that his movie was not objectionable, mm-hmm. which is the reverse of the way our legal system works for everything else. Yes, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. So this court in 1965 then says, okay, the burden of proof is now on the censor. Mm-hmm. If a censor doesn't like a movie, they've got to go to court and they've got to prove to a judge that this is a film that really, truly deserves to be kept out of the public view. And then the judge has to issue uh, some sort of legal document that, uh, s- that stops the uh, projection of the film. Right. Is that right? Yeah. Right. So the, the burden of proof shifts, which is a, a huge sea change in what had been going on, but the court never said this is unconstitutional. Uh-huh. The result, though, was that the states who were still censoring at the time, which was New York and Virginia and Maryland, mm-hmm. 
decided to rewrite their censorship statutes. New York didn't do a good job of rewriting their statute, and when it comes up for um, a challenge in the New York courts, the New York courts say, this doesn't, this doesn't fly, mm-hmm. and New York is done. Mm-hmm. They're out in 1965. Virginia goes until 1966. Again, it's their state court that, that ends Virginia. Maryland, which is where the case came from in the first place, Maryland rewrote its statute to conform with the case, which was called Freedman versus Maryland. Mm-hmm. They did such a good job of rewriting the statute to conform that Maryland kept censoring all by itself mm-hmm. until 1981. Mm-hmm. That's why the odd series of dates on the title of the book, yeah. it says 1915 to 1981, because Maryland just kept on going. But after 1965, due to the Supreme Court ruling, then it was very difficult for the states to censor any right. movies. Yeah. And right. um, what... What was the response from the film industry itself? Because I know that it was around this time, I don't really recall, that the age restriction system comes into play. Could you explain a little bit about how that evolved? There were, there were some attempts to do age restrictions. Actually, with Hollywood, with the production code, while the censors are getting hit by the courts in the 1950s, the Hollywood production code starts being hit internally uh-huh. by producers. There are some producers like Otto Preminger who, and, and uh, Goldwyn who just say, this is nuts. We, we, th- this, this code is outmoded. You're hamstringing us. You're not allowing us to make movies that appeal to adult sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look what's happening with the state censors. They're getting hammered by the courts, and, and that, that encourages mm-hmm. in, independent producers to start to fight back against Hollywood's own self-censorship. Mm-hmm. And they start making movies. The first breakthrough for the production code is a movie called The Moon is Blue, mm-hmm. made by Otto Preminger. And he made the movie in 1953 and basically made the movie to test the code. He mm-hmm. knew it wasn't going to pass the code. He knew he wouldn't get a code seal, which mm-hmm. meant that there were a lot of theaters he wouldn't be able to play the movie in. Mm-hmm. But he made it anyway as a test. Mm-hmm. When he didn't get the code seal, he played the movie in whatever theaters he could find, and the movie wound up being one of the top box office hits of 1953. <laughs> At that point, Hollywood starts to say, we've got problems, yeah. <laughs> and we need to start right. loosening the code. So they start internally loosening the code, loosening up some of the restrictions. Uh, for an example, in the original production code, you couldn't show any narcotic use whatsoever. Uh-huh. In a revision that's done of the code in 1956, they say you can show narcotics use, but it has to show that it's bad. I see. So they start loosening up some of the restrictions so that Hollywood can start to make movies that can compete with these foreign films Mm -hmm. that are coming in that are not regulated by the code. Mm -hmm. So we start to see some restrictions, some loosening there. And then in the 1960s, the... Legion of Decency starts a new category that was called Suggested for Mature Audiences. Mm -hmm. And Hollywood also adopts that, also called the SMA, Suggested for Mature Audiences. That's the beginning of age classification. I see. Uh That Uh there would be movies that would be for adults only. Uh That's the first time it takes until the 60s before we get the idea that not every movie made needs to be okay for everyone. And does the MPA still uh, stamp those age restrictions on movies? Are they in charge of the classification process? I see. Yes, they are. Now, the Hollywood Production Code pretty much goes away by 1966. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see the parallel demise of the governmental censors and the self-censors in Hollywood because the demise is happening at about 
just about the same time. So the state censors are pretty much gone by 1965. The production code is a dead letter by 1966. Mm-hmm. And then some localities, though, start to say, but there's a flood of all kinds of movies coming in. Nobody's watching anything now. And so some localities start putting in their own age restrictions. Mm-hmm. They start saying, okay, we'll, we'll empower somebody to look at these movies and then say, okay, this is only good for adults. No, this is fine for somebody who's under 16. Mm-hmm. Those age classification categories started really worrying Hollywood. I see, I see. They were afraid of those. And that case does come before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court knocks down an age classification ordinance in Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. But they also say, this one ordinance won't fly, but if you come back with a better one, <laughs> we will uphold that. They actually you know, yeah. hint at that, right. and that makes Hollywood so nervous that they say, we better do this ourselves right. before there's a federal law requiring age restriction. Yeah, I see. So that's when Hollywood creates right. the rating system that we know today, and mm-hmm. that comes that comes into play in 1968. I see. Okay. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Let me ask a, a couple of more questions because I'm just interested. Where do we stand with movie censorship today or film censorship in general by all means of distribution? If you could speak just a few words about that, okay. that would be great. It's, uh, basically, a movie can still be prosecuted after the fact for obscenity. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, obscenity is not protected by the First Amendment. And again, you know, the discussion of what obscenity is could take another hour, but it's it's not protected. So if a local official wanted to charge a movie theater with showing an obscene movie, mm-hmm. that movie could be shut down, but only while the litigation is going on. I see. And it's after the fact. So that's that's entirely different from the era of film censorship that my book talks about. Uh-huh. Now, there is age classification yep. uh, from the in, uh, inherent in the production code, and that stops a lot of uh, stops a lot of problems for Hollywood in advance uh-huh. because they can say, well, if you think this movie is obscene, we told you that no one under 17 should be allowed to see it. We right. rated it NC-17, mm-hmm. and that is Hollywood's protect- protection and, and movie theaters' protection against most obscenity um, prosecutions. So there's not much of that going on. There was some going on in the 1970s mm-hmm. with movies like, like Deep Throat and I Am Curious Yellow. Yeah. There were um, um, obscenity prosecutions then, but I'm not aware of much of that happening today. Mm-hmm. Is there any censorship going on today of movies? I mean, does you know, is it, uh, you mentioned Kansas, I, and I'm from Kansas, and I know people from Kansas are uh, an interesting lot. I mean, has, has, are there any efforts currently on the local or state level to censor films? There are none that I know of. I see. That's and that, that's, that's a testament to Hollywood's um, age classification and the rating system and how, how, how good a job, how good a PR job they've done of, of convincing people that they are protecting America's children with that rating system. Yeah, well, there's no protecting America's children now we have the Internet. <laughs> it's just not good. possible. <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. Well, that's the topic of another show. Let me ask you one final question. What are you working on now? Well, actually, I do have uh, – there's another book coming out um, that is the central chapter of Freedom of the Screen, which mm-hmm. is the, the, the miracle case. Mm-hmm. That's the pivot point. Mm-hmm. Before that, no First Amendment protection. After that, First Amendment protection, but mm, not – you know, we have to work things out. And that is now I've, – I've got a co-author who I'm very pleased to, to um, reveal the name of because he's been such a wonderful co-author. His name is Raymond Haberski, mm-hmm. and we've produced another book just on the miracle case. Mm-hmm. And that book is coming out in October, that's and that's coming out with the University Press of Kansas in their Landmarks in American Law Cases series. Go. 
And that book looks at the miracle case, looks at the, the legal, some of the legal stuff that I talked about here and I talk about in Freedom of the Screen, mm-hmm. and looks at how that case had broad ripple effects into the broader popular culture. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't just stop with the miracle. It looks at what that case did for popular culture, for film critics, and for the movies, and for the future of movies, and sex and violence content in movies. So that goes, that book actually takes that case and looks at what its effect was on movies of today. Yeah, let me close with some flattery. Uh, Putting out one book in a couple of years is hard. Putting out two books in a couple of years, that is uh, almost unheard of. (laughs) Do you sleep? It's incredible. Well, thank you, but I did have a co-author for the second book. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you very much for talking to us today. We've been talking to Laura Wittern Keller about her book, Freedom of the Screen, Legal Challenges to State Film Censorship, 1915 to 1981. Thanks a lot, Laura. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Marshall. Sure, okay. You've been listening to an interview with Laura Wittern Keller about her book, Freedom of the Screen, Legal Challenges to State Film Censorship, 1915 to 1981. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, signing off for this week. We hope to see you next week. Thanks very much.